the book of Isaiah chapter 9. Isaiah 9, we have this famed section, um, maybe made even more famous by Handel's Messiah, uh, where we get these four names of Christ. Now, I say four, and uh, I love Handel's Messiah, just to be very clear. I listened to uh, the entirety of it multiple times during the Christmas season. But he does this a little bit of a disservice where he puts his pauses, uh, and he separates wonderful and counselor, and he shouldn't. Um, we're thankful for his, for his work, but, but these really are four titles, and they, they run through uh, the entirety of this section of this verse, and, and, and you'll see them, and every one of them is what we call a couplet. And each one of these names or titles of Christ, the Messiah, have both a human component and a divine component. And so it is uh, one of those first hints that Jesus, was going, that Jesus, the Messiah, was going to be truly God and truly man. And we're going to take the next several weeks to work through each one of those. Uh, and so this morning we're going to do a little bit of prep work to help understand the context because it really matters. Uh, and then we're going to dig into wonderful counsel this morning. So uh, Isaiah 9, I want to read from verse 1 down through verse 6. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, but in the latter time he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken, as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult, and every garment rolled in blood, will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, and to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Cormac McCarthy a modern-day novelist, fiction writer, uh, his, his books are dark stuff. They're difficult reads. They're certainly not for everyone. Uh, they've been described as modern-day versions of Judges. And if you're familiar at all with the book of Judges, and you immediately understand you're going to have some very difficult content. The theme of Judges, you see, is every man does that which is right in his own eyes, and you have this cyclical nature of the nation of Israel doing evil, God raising up a judge to help deliver them, and then them falling back and doing evil again. Uh, you, you have Deborah and Barak who, who helped to deliver. You have Gideon. You have Samson who's a kind of judge. And you get to the end of Judges. Every man does that which is right in his own eyes. It's almost the, this kind of anarchist society and culture. And you really are left crying out, we need one true king. That's the whole point of Judges. You see the darkness. You need the light of a king who would come. Well, Cormac McCarthy, all of his books are almost driven by that kind of mindset. One of his most famous is the book called The Road. It takes place in a post-apocalyptic American culture. You find a family where the mother has taken her own life to escape the, the drudgery and misery of the world around them. And so a father is traveling with his boy simply trying to survive. They come upon one evil character after another in their book as it seems as though all of humanity has left the planet. And because everyone does whatever is right in their own eyes, they only see other people as resources to be used and abused and destroyed. And throughout the book, you see the father lose his own sense of humanity. And he describes to his son, the only good left in the world are those who carry the light because it's so dark. And you see the glimpses of this light in the life of the boy. Uh, and really, light in his book only represents humanity, a sense of kindness, a sense of care for your fellow man. Something that the rest of the world is devoid of, and it seems as though the father has to reject just to survive. The book ends devastatingly with the father dying, and the boy left on his own. And the only seeming light you have in this darkness at the end of Cormac McCarthy's novel, and it's left intentionally uh, ambiguous, intentionally vague, is a family comes upon the boy. And at that point in the novel, you as the reader don't trust anyone any longer. Because you know they very may, well may do the very worst to this boy 
for their own survival. And all this little boy can ask this family is, do you carry the light? And it's left vague to you whether or not they do. Now, you don't have to live in a post-apocalyptic world or in a fictional novel to realize that we live in a very dark world. You may have experienced the darkness in your own life over this last week or two or over this past year, the darkness of sitting in a doctor's office and not knowing what decisions to make. The darkness of trying to parent and not knowing wisely how to help your children. The darkness of navigating relational strain and difficulty in your friendships or in your family where you just don't seem to have the answers and it seems like this whole relationship is unraveling in front of you. The darkness of a job where someone's taking credit for your work or an overbearing boss or lazy employees and there's just a darkness to it and you don't know what to do. You don't know where to turn. You don't know where the answers are. You simply want a light to come through. Maybe you've been overwhelmed by the darkness of coming through COVID or through a political atmosphere that's increasingly antagonistic and seems increasingly led, led by people that just are serving their own ends. Darkness. The darkness of trial after trial after trial. It seems like our country just moves from one trial to the next of headline-making news of sinful things that are taking place in our world. Darkness. And you come to the, all, the end of all that darkness and your heart is craving for light. And that's exactly where we find Isaiah 9. Isaiah is a prophet and he's writing into the nation of Israel and it's a dark time for them, now laboring no longer under judges, but Israel now caught in another cycle, a cycle of good king, bad king, good king, bad king, impending captivity by the Assyrians and the Babylonians. And into all of this darkness, Isaiah is trying to write truth. You can actually see it if you back up to Isaiah, the very last verse of chapter 8. They will look to the earth, but behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish. They will be thrust into thick darkness. And so this morning, our understanding would be this. The Messiah comes, Jesus comes, that the, because the darkness of our world cries out for miraculous, light-giving wisdom. We need truth in the midst of lies. We need some kind of righteousness in the midst of the sinfulness of this world and into darkness of your life and mine and of this entire world came the Messiah. And so to help us understand that, we want to get the context a little bit better here with Isaiah. And to do that, we're actually going to have a look back to darkness. Now, Isaiah is writing, and he's specifically referencing a particular time in the nation of Israel's history. And he's referencing a time when the Midianites had come in. It's from, found in Judges chapter 6. The Midianites came in, and it was right at the tail end of Deborah and Barak and their deliverance, and there was 40 years of peace in the land. And then the nation again devolved into idolatrous worship and sinfulness. And so God sent or allowed the Midianites to come in, and for seven years they had oppressed the nation of Israel, particularly in the northern regions of Naphtali and Zebulun. And the, the Midianites were a particularly cruel oppressor and overlord. When the Midianites would come in, they would slaughter men wholesale, for sure. They would kill boys to prevent them from growing up and becoming a standing army. But they would time their assaults yearly whenever there was a harvest, usually twice a year. They would show up when harvest came, and they would take all the food, leaving nothing behind. They didn't care if the people starved to death. And they would take any and all livestock that they could find, leaving the people absolutely impoverished, devoid of food. You take food from a culture, and that's when you'll see some craziness happen. Uh, just think of the last time there was a hint of a dusting of some kind of whiteness here in Colombia, and you try to go to the grocery store. Or do you remember what it was like when uh, the pandemic first started hitting our area and uh, kids are getting taken out of school? You'd go to the grocery store, and you couldn't find bread. You couldn't find flour. You, you, couldn't, you couldn't find stuff to make your own bread. People are clearing out the shelves. People are hoarding toilet paper right? I'm convinced out there that somebody is still with a garage full of toilet paper. You take away needed resources, the inability of people to get those resources, and you will destroy a culture rapidly. And that's exactly what's going on in the nation of Israel. For seven years, they're living under this oppression. And then so then God decides that this darkness needs some light. And so he brings to them an unlikely deliverer. 
And the unlikely deliverer is this guy named Gideon. Now, some of you know the story of Gideon. Some of you are not as familiar with it. It'd be worth your time to read this week. Gideon is a type of Christ for us. But Gideon is actually hiding uh, in a place, threshing out grain, where you normally would make wine, because the Midianites know they're not going to have enough fruit to make wine, hoping to hide from them. So he's undercover. Everything Gideon does, and it's actually amazing if you read his story, is done under the cover of darkness. It's in a dark land. He's hiding at night. He does his battle at night because he's hiding. He's scared. Gideon is cast as this fearful guy. He's no leading general. Uh, Every job God gives him to do, he's terrified to do it. Uh, Famously, he's the guy that throws out the fleece before the Lord. And unfortunately, so many Christians today think that that's a good way of finding out God's will. Uh, Gideon puts out the fleece, and, and I don't remember the exact structure, but one night it's God make all the ground filled with dew and the fleece dry, and that's what happens. That's not enough for Gideon, so now it's the next night make only the fleece wet and all the rest of the ground dry, God does that, and he still doesn't want to obey God. Listen, fleecing is not the way to find God's will. He already knew what to do. He needed to go do it. When God tells you what to do, go do it. But Gideon is scared. Gideon lacks courage. Uh, when he raises up an army, God says it's too many when Gideon thinks it's too few. God whittles it down. Gideon goes at night. They have torches and jars, and they go into the the Midianite camp, and the Bible describes it as just covered in locusts because the Midianites would move nomadically, and all their people would consume all your stuff, and then they'd move on to the next area. And they they blow these horns. They break the jars. Suddenly there's flames with light, and it confuses the army, and God destroys them, and it brings deliverance to northern lands. This is what Isaiah is referencing. Isaiah is saying, in a very not-so-subtle way, God knows what it's like when your land is dark, and he knows how to bring deliverance to you. Your land is dark, Israel. For us, our world is dark, and our lives are dark. But he knows how to bring deliverance. Let me just show it to you from the text. In verse 1, he references Zebulun and Naphtali. These are these northern regions. So we know that this is what he's talking about. Uh, this is the place in the Bible where this took, where this happened. In verse 2, he says, Into their darkness came delivering light. Uh, this is no mistake. As I just referenced, so much of Gideon's story happens at night. God brings daylight, the torches that are hidden in darkness that are now flamed with light. Verse 3, there's joy now at the harvest, where before, harvest would, should always be in an agrarian culture, the happy time. It's like payday. But when you know the Midianites are coming, you're terrified. Your, your fear would increase. Your thought would be, when's the soonest we can harvest before the Midianites get here without ruining the harvest by reaping too early? And so there would have been the fear of them coming and killing and what they're going to do. But now there can actually be joy at the harvest, and it comes with a military kind of victory. In verse 4, it's the Midian overlords who are destroyed. God breaks them. He says it very clearly from Isaiah that it's the Midianites. And then there's verse 5. It's a holy victory. When Gideon achieves victory, it's not by Gideon's genius strategy. It's by God's power and his righteousness overwhelming. And so Isaiah is telling us this scene from Judges 6 into 7 is the perfect picture of what it will be like when Jesus comes. A land filled with darkness overwhelmed under oppression, no joy in the harvest seasons, seemingly no no victory for God, and into this, Christ will come. The Messiah will arrive, and then he gives you the names of him, four ways to think about him. As I said, truly God, truly man, wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, and prince of peace. And so the way we're going to be able to work through it this morning and by God's grace each week, is we'll look at each one of those terms. And this week, the term wonderful is a reference to the deity of Christ, and counselor is a reference to the humanity of Christ. And so let's let's understand wonderful a little bit. Uh, The term, it's a Hebrew word that references the miraculous and the powerful, uh, the amazing. It it points to the supernatural, and it's used in Scripture uh, frequently to refer to the acts of God things that could be seen only as being divine. Uh, Not even things that people might dismiss as coincidence, even though we understand it's God's sovereignty or his providence, but things that would be overwhelmingly obvious, God did that. God did this thing. 
One of the ones that's referenced most frequently is the deliverance of Israel from the Egyptians at the Red Sea. Uh, It's not just even the ten plagues that take place, but specifically this moment in time. That moment when the Jews are fleeing away, running away from Egypt, and they end up trapped between the Red Sea and the, and the encroaching Egyptian army. The largest and most powerful freestanding army on the globe at that time. And there's no way for them to get across the Red Sea. There's no way for them to be delivered from the Egyptians. Now, lest we be confused about what the Egyptians thought was going to happen, their goal here was not so much to bring the Jews back to Egypt but it was to view them in a place and in a time where they could consume them. And so Exodus records this moment this way. In the greatness of your majesty, you overthrow your adversaries. You send out your fury. It consumes them like stubble. At the blast of your nostrils, the water piled up. The flood stood up in a heap. The the deeps congealed in the heart of the sea. And so in this moment, the seas are pushed back. The Jews can go through. The enemy, the Egyptians, they said this, I will pursue, I will overtake, I will divide the spoil. My desire shall have its fill of them. I will draw my sword, my hand shall destroy them. Their whole goal was to kill God's people. You blew with your wind, the sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness? awesome and glorious deeds, doing wonders. First thing I want to point out to you is the attitude of the Egyptians. They view God's people as having no hope and no help whatsoever. There is nobody that's going to be able to get them or deliver them from their hand. They see this fleeing band of former slaves, so people that they had already dehumanized, people they already viewed as weak and less than them, as now just pray before them, fish it in a barrel for them to shoot. Easy pickings for them. They see these slaves with their women and their children in tow. They see them as a group to plunder, to steal from, to kill and destroy. It is Satan in chariot-level darkness, the one who's come to do nothing but to steal, kill, and destroy. I don't know about you, but I've experienced some dark times when it feels like all it's doing is stealing, killing, and, and taking away any joy or sense of peace and rest that I have. When was the last time you were caught in a situation and you were sleepless over it because you didn't know the answer? When was the last time you were in a spot and your flesh came out of you in your reactions? Anger, resentment, bitterness, you lashed out because you didn't know how to solve it. When was the last time somebody looked at you for help and you didn't know how to fix it? Yesterday, I was working on my car, as I love to do, apparently. I was changing a fuel pump. It's now my least favorite job to ever do in a car. And I didn't know this, but I was following a, not a shade tree mechanic, but a shady mechanic, because there's a particular bolt that holds up the gas tank. And the guy who had worked on this car before me had used his impact wrench to run this bolt in there, and he'd stripped and cross-threaded the bolt into the bottom of the car. Now, one bolt took me about 30 seconds to get out. That bolt took me over an hour to get out. I'm laying under my car on the ground yesterday. I don't know if you know, it was a little chilly. Had my breaker bar on it. The only way I could make any progress on this bolt was turn my ratchet about four clicks and have my son use all of his leg strength that he had to shove the wrench and then click another four clicks. The bolt was that long. It was the most depressing, agonizing thing I've ever done on a car. My son could tell you multiple times, I literally was laying under the car praying, dear Jesus, help me fix this car. It was an overwhelming moment. It was a dark moment. Now, now that's, the car's fixed. God gave grace. I don't minimize that. We got it done. When was the last time you were in a spot where you just didn't know how you were going to fix this? It was a relationship Maybe it was a personal sin struggle. You're caught and overwhelmed by the darkness of your own habitual sin. You just don't know how you're going to get free. You know you should actually confess and tell somebody, but you don't want to. You don't want to, you tell yourself because of shame, and that's true, but you also don't want to because if we're really being honest, when we're caught in those kind of habitual dark sins, it's because we like it better than we would like holiness. And in those moments, the enemy wants to steal, 
to kill and to destroy. And that's all the Egyptians see in darkness. All the enemy sees is an opportunity to take advantage of us. But the second thing I want you to see is what God was on mission for. You see, in the verse, verse 7 there, it says, In the greatness of your majesty, you overthrew your adversaries. The majesty of God is his magnificence, his highness over everything else which is low. Yes, the, the destruction of the Egyptians is a display of God caring for his covenant people. Yes, it is a marker of his love and his affection for the people that he would say, that he said that he was going to deliver. Yes, it was a demonstration that he was more powerful than any of the idols that the Egyptians served. But first and foremost, it's a display of his majesty. What is the majesty of God? The majesty of God is his excellence, his highness, his height over all others. It is his kingship over all peasants it is his wealth over all who are impoverished which is everyone else his holiness over all that is wickedness and sinfulness it is the glory of god put on display through power that is what his majesty is that is what his glory is one of the key themes coming out of the reformation said in last latin was post tenebris lux it means after darkness light Many people get confused about who John Calvin was. And in one of his letters, he was writing back and forth, debating a Roman Catholic bishop, Jacopo. Jacopo was his, was his name. And Calvin was trying to say why they were different, as Jacopo was trying to get Geneva to kick Calvin out. And he said this, essentially, Steve's words. He said, the problem is your mission is to glorify man. Your emphasis is on man. How can you be better? How can you be accepted? How can you get penance? How can you give money? And our mission is the glory, the majesty of God. Do you know why we exist? We exist for the glory of God. To make Him big. Now, if we think about that truly, we must live in the reality, then darkness will come so the light might shine. And so God's people are trapped here. And it's a dark time standing there on the shore of the Red Sea. The Egyptians breathing down their necks, nowhere to hide, nowhere to run. And then the majesty of God breaks through that darkness. Isaiah is telling them, he's telling the people that light will come out of darkness. That power will face down and destroy evil. And that it will be in a miraculous kind of power. And it will put God on display. Somehow the Messiah is going to put the majesty of God on display. And so then we would wonder, how does that happen? And we would ask, was the Messiah's coming miraculous? Well, yes. Just think about the miracle of his birth. Whether it is the fact that he's born of a virgin. Or his birth is predicted by an angel. Or that it was announced at his arrival to an by angels. Or that shepherds left their flocks in their fields, which shepherds never do just to come and worship this infant, whether it's wise men who trek uh, across uh, half the globe almost just to get to him, to worship him, whether it is Simeon and Anna in the temple delighting and rejoicing and saying that now the Messiah has arrived, Simeon, who famously holds Jesus in the temple at his naming ceremony and says, now I can depart in peace. Let me die because I have seen the Messiah who has come whether it's the miraculous deliverance from Herod's death decree, his birth is a miraculous and majestic moment. In many ways, as quiet as his arrival was, the King of Kings, the Prince of Heaven, it is miraculous and glorious. But it, we don't just see his miraculous nature in his birth. We see it in his works, whether it's his first miracle of turning water into wine. His omniscient awareness of what was going on around him. He calls one disciple to him and he says, I saw you sitting under the tree. How did he see him sitting under the tree? Because of, of his omniscient awareness. His reliance upon the power of the Holy Spirit in that moment to inform him of all things. He would look upon a person and immediately know what was going on in their life. His power to heal the sick, to cure the blind, to make the lame walk again, and the deaf to hear again. Some of the most powerful moments in, in my reading is when he delivers the possessed. Uh, one father, after he comes from the Mount of Transfiguration with a demon-possessed son who is trying to commit suicide and keeps throwing himself into the fire, and, and he's begging Jesus, and Jesus demonstrates his power over Satan 
and all of his demons and casting the demons out. Or the man, the, the, the lunatic who's filled with legion, who lives in a graveyard covered in cuts and bruises, the chains cannot hold him, and he casts a thousand demons out of the man. Throughout the life of Jesus, he demonstrates his miraculous power over sickness, over anything spiritual, and over nature itself as he walks on water and he makes storms to cease in an instant and water to turn into glass. When his own followers would be confused about it, rowing and toiling all night, getting nowhere, and he comes walking on the walks to them on the water, and in the next moment they're on the other shore. His entire life is miraculous. And then maybe most profoundly, when he stands in another graveyard and he yells to the dead man, Lazarus, come forth. I love the fact that he had to call him Lazarus, as many say, because if he had just said, dead, come forth, the whole graveyard would have walked out. His miraculous power to deliver you and I from sin. Do you remember when Christ called you from death? Do you remember when Christ called you from darkness? Do you remember that moment when you were deaf, you had been deaf to the pleas of the gospel, and then Jesus opened your ears? It was as though you had never heard it before, and suddenly you got it. You had never seen it before, and you got it. And so maybe for some of you, you remember this specific moment. Maybe for others of you, it was more like Peter talks about the dawning of the day star. And so it was a gradual glowing, and then a realization, Christ is King. And I will follow him and no one else. His entire work is noted as miraculous. And not just that, but then just even in his person. Jesus is completely on mission for God the Father. He experiences rejection, abandonment by friends, torture, and murder while never sinning. His own family, his own brothers, try to send him away to get killed at one point because they're embarrassed of him. He's preaching and they say, don't you have any shame? You should go down to Jerusalem fully believing that they'd stone him to death if he went there. And Jesus consistently says, not my will, but the Father. Not my will, but the Father. We find him praying, sweating great drops of blood in the Garden of Gethsemane, saying, but not my will, the Father's will be done. He does all of this, he goes through all of this, and he does it all perfectly sinless. Some of you are like me, and you get cut off on 26. And your flesh is right there. That person doesn't do the job they were supposed to do. You gave them the job, you told them the job, clearly communicated the job, for some reason they can't get the job done. This person won't follow simple commands. You know how to do it. You can overwhelm them with the volume of your voice or the cutting nature of your words. Your spouse doesn't love you right. They don't respect you, they don't lead you, they don't care for you, they don't serve you, they don't prioritize you in their life. You know how to communicate that to them. Manipulation, argumentation, subtle or not so subtle innuendos and comments to get through the message. Some of you just came through Thanksgiving with family and it was filled with darkness and a lot of flesh. And Jesus goes through this life perfectly sinless. He dies and three days later, that was a whole different dawning because there was a whole different sun that arose that day. And so when we look at the life of Christ, we're reminded that our land is dark. Our lives are dark with sin. Our relationships get strained and they get broken. And into this darkness, we need the light of God to shine forth. Jesus is the perfect personification of the majesty of God. The darkness of our world is crying out for this. You might even be here this morning and you don't even know Jesus. And you know the reality of your darkness. You know the fact of how you were driven for your own desires, your own ways, your own wants. Maybe you're even here this morning and you're weary of being controlled and bondage to your sin. Your heart craves light. It may even be that you're a believer though this morning and there's conviction beginning to fall because you realize how easily and quickly you give into the darkness of sin. How much of your life is still controlled as though by the old man, Romans 7. How much of your life is still dominated that, that God has called you to walk in righteousness and you, you walk in depravity. And so we are in desperate need 
of the majesty, the miraculous power of God. There is no self-help book that can make you a better Christian. There's only the power of Christ in you coming out of you that can make you more like Him. And so Isaiah, though, links this term to this other word. He says it's a wonderful counselor. And so somehow it is this majestic or uh, divinely powerful counselor. And so we want to understand this term, right? So we understand this term. It signifies someone who helps to provide direction on various matters of life. They see the need. They understand the situation, and they speak direction into the life of the person involved. Lawyers, attorneys are sometimes called counselors. Counselors because we're not experts in the law, and if you end up in a legal situation, you need counsel. You need an expert in the law to counsel you. We have guidance counselors in schools, whether to help children uh, emotionally, mentally, or uh, as they go through junior high and high school, guidance counselors help them direct them toward careers. Kids don't have any idea. They don't, they don't have a natural, intuitive way to determine what their strengths and weaknesses are, possible career paths for what they would delight in. And so these are people exist to help them, to help them know this, help them understand this, to figure this out. We can think of it in a spiritual way, help them to understand how God has made them, how he's wired them, how he's gifted them, and what career might work well with that. We have relationship counselors that enter people's lives to help them with relational hurt. We have marriage counselors to help people work to have healthy, uh, holy marriages. We have biblical counselors. Biblical counselors because we recognize that when you're working with someone, you need to deal, deal with the totality of the person. And rarely does any problem occur in your life that does not also have a spiritual component to it. Look, we, when we open the Bible, the fact of the matter is you can have a spiritual issue that results in physical problems. Uh, you just simply look at 1 Corinthians. Many of you take communion in a wrong way, and for this reason, many of you are sick and some have even died. So you have this spiritual problem resulting in a physical condition. You can have the flip. You can have physical conditions that are resulting in spiritual problems. you got this one guy who's born blind. The disciples say, who sinned, him or his parents? The synagogue doesn't want anything to do with him. So biblical counselors enter the picture and they understand that if we're going to deal with someone holistically, we need to deal with the spiritual components to our lives. You're not going to have a marriage problem without having a spiritual problem. You're not going to have a parenting problem without having a spiritual problem. You're not going to have a career crisis moment without a spiritual problem. So we have all kinds of counselors. We live in a world of counsel. We, it takes lots of names. We would call it advice. Right? The fact of the matter is, every person in this room is a counselor. I guarantee you at some point in your life, somebody's been asking you, hey, what do you think I should do? The problem comes in when we think counseling alone exists for somebody who's got their shingle hung out, Dr. So-and-so, you pay him money to tell you what to do. Or counseling's for somebody that's really broken or having a mental health crisis. That's not true. The reality is we all tend to be blind to our own blindness. We all tend to be blind to our own sinfulness. We all tend to get lost and we can't see the forest for the trees, we need help. And so we go through life needing help. The people who isolate themselves, the Bible tells us, are fools who seek their own desires. You need people speaking into your life. I need people speaking into my life. Who's speaking into your life? Well, the one that should speak the most in your life is Christ. And how does he communicate, and how should we understand counseling in an even better way? Well, let me give you a couple ways to think about what makes good counseling comprehension they've got to be able to understand a situation and you in that situation the ultimate reality is in james he talks about the fact of if any of you lack wisdom let him ask of god i'm not sure there's any moment more dark or darker than when you're in a spot and you don't know what to do You just don't know what the answer is. You don't know how to fix it, but it's got to be fixed. You don't know how you're going to continue in the same way without a change. If something doesn't change, you feel like you're going to go crazy. You feel trapped. You feel confined. You feel claustrophobic. Some of you are talking about this, and you know, you're going through something right now, and like, even when I'm saying this, your mouth is going dry, and maybe your heart rate is increasing a little bit. There's a darkness to that. Uh, a trouble 
that stays with you all day. Uh, the, the kind of a trouble that you just are desperate for distraction from because you've gotten to the point you've given up on fixing it. So how do you move through this darkness? And, and so if there's a counselor that's going to enter your life, need one that's going to comprehend. And there's so many things they have to understand. But one of the key things they have to understand is the need to how do you communicate when someone is in darkness, and, and it's going to be truth and love. You need someone who comprehends in a way that doesn't rush to judgment, but understands the need to delve in with you. You need someone who can get a big picture view of what's going on. When you and I need counsel, you need someone with some expertise and experience. There's a few people in my life, if I want financial counsel, that I reach out to. And I reach out to them because it's evident in their lives uh, that they love Jesus, that matters the most to me, because we're filled with a world that wants to tell me what to do with any money that I have that, that isn't loving Jesus. They love Jesus, and they have expertise, and they're clearly gifted. They can comprehend. So I'm going to reach out to those kind of people. I want to buy, if I can say this, we wisdom from them. When, when my wife was going through a medical crisis this past year, I reached out to some people, had some people reach out to me. I didn't even know they had expertise. And they walked me through, and they gave me the exact questions to ask surgeons and oncologists that I wouldn't have known otherwise. They were experts. I'm not Google experts. I got Google too. But I want some experts who could comprehend and be willing to tell. And I remember one, I told him, I said, I want you to feel freedom. I'm not going to be mad at you for you telling me what do you think I ought to do. Shoot me straight. Comprehension. And he did in a loving, truth-filled way. We're told to speak the truth in love. It needs to come with compassion, but the truth's got to be there. Secondarily, that content, the content must be solid. Counsel on the surface is simply advice. Well, I think you should do this. Only has so much value. But in our lives, there, there's so many bad counselors through history, and you can actually read through the Old Testament. The kings don't know what to do. They call for counsel. And if the counselor just wants the king's approval, they tell him whatever he wants to hear. But a good counselor is going to speak truth content, biblical content. We've been, we've been working through 2 Corinthians together. We've been filling our time in that study with seeing the difference between false teachers and the Apostle Paul. And we're surrounded on every side by false teachers, by people who will simply tell us what we want to hear, who will communicate to itching ears. We need content that's truth-filled and that's scriptural and that's biblical. I think the most powerful counsel you can give into someone's life when they're talking to you uh, is to say, well, let's open the Bible. What does the Bible say about this and how we should handle this? Or I think you should do this, but I want you to understand why I think this applies. Let me take you to this text of Scripture. I think your marriage does need help, and I think your marriage does need healing, because guess what? Everybody's marriage needs help, and everybody's marriage needs healing. Let me take you to the text of Scripture that will help you understand this problem. And so content needs to be rigorously biblical. And then thirdly, the communication needs to happen. I love this proverb, the purpose in a man's heart is like deep water, but a man of understanding will draw it out. There's so much there, but it tells us that a good counselor has to be able to communicate in a way that connects with the person or people, helps them to see the situation for what it really is. I'll just tell you this, and experientially in counseling, you spend lots and lots of your time helping people come back out of the trees so they can see the forest and then figure out what to do with it. It gets so dark. It's so easy to get lost. And, and what I found fascinating about this is you could have all the skill and the ability, the gifting of God, the truth of God, and the experience to do that in someone else's life. You end up in that spot, and guess what you need? Someone to do it in your life. And so in a particularly dark and difficult moment in my life this year, I sat at Irmo Park eating Subway, while Darren and Nicolette counseled my heart. There's no shame in my game of telling you that. I desperately needed it. And I'll tell you this, lots of what I heard, I would say 90% of it, I'm sitting there, I'm thinking in my heart, 
That's true. You knew that, Steve. That's true. That's true. Why was I at such an impasse then? Because God has wired us to need other people to help figure out what's going on in our heart. And then a, a good solid 10% or more was like, man, I totally didn't get that. I so needed that. It was good for my soul. Are you ever ashamed to seek counseling? Are you ashamed to admit, I just don't know what to do? Could really use some help. Could really use some prayer. Maybe you don't even have answers. Maybe there are no answers to your situation. Then let's get together and let's pray and cry to Jesus. And that's the best answer of all for your struggle. And so a counselor helps us to figure out wisely what is going on in our hearts. And this is exactly how Isaiah is picturing Jesus. So it's a dark time. In darkness, you don't know what to do. It feels claustrophobic as the world is is just pressing in on you. Sinfulness, maybe your own sin, maybe somebody else's sin, maybe circumstances of life, maybe health, maybe mental, maybe maybe emotional, maybe financial. And it's dark and you need some light. And he says, into this the Messiah will come. The world had been 400 years with no communication from God. That's dark. And Jesus shows up. As the wonderful counselor, what... What does it look like to have a counseling Messiah? He's telling Isaiah, telling us the perfect picture, the best example, the divine answer to the need in dark times for knowledge, the need for wisdom, the need to know what you should do and how you should do it. The answer is the Messiah. Jesus is your and my perfect counselor. Counseling from Christ is to have God put his finger on our practical daily need our practical daily lives, and give us the perspective, the answers, the hope, and the direction, and how we should live. That's why the best human counselors find ways to push us to Jesus and not themselves. Jesus is the perfect counselor then. Can I just give you some bennies? First of all, he guides us into truth and righteousness. It's a particular dark time for the disciples. Jesus says, I'm going to die. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you're going. How can we know the way? They come to the point where it's like, okay, Jesus, wherever you're going, that's where I'm going. But you're just saying you're going to heaven and you're going to leave us and we don't know how to get there. We need some GPS directions. How do I get there? When was the last time you were like, Jesus, you're going to have to give me some direction. I don't know what to do. Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus speaks truth into our everyday lives. He speaks light into our darkness by first and foremost calling you and I to repent and believe in him. Listen, at the base level, the darkness of your life is your own sinfulness and your desperate need of a Savior. And the first counsel Jesus gives to you is to repent of your sin, believe in me, and be saved. And experiencing the light and life-giving hope of Christ in you, coming out of you. In that moment, we are gloriously set free from slavery to sin, to serve a majestic, loving, and kind King. And, And the gospel, yes, there's a conversion moment, but you and I need the gospel every day. I'm in such desperate need today for Jesus to remind me that He is the way, He is the truth, and He is the life. I need Him as I walk through the next month uh, surrounded by a culture gone crazy that thinks the best way to celebrate Jesus is to go bankrupt. Surrounded by a culture that's going to tell me uh, all the things that will make me happy and that will make my children happy. I'm surrounded by a culture that, that says more food, more drink, more presence. That's the, that's the path. I need Jesus to remind me He is the way. He is the truth. He is the life. Not things of this world. I need Jesus to remind me that when you experience relational rejection, He is my identity because He is the way. He is the truth. He is the life. Not acceptance from someone else. Not respect from someone else. Not finding my identity in anything that I do or any role that I fulfill as a father or a husband or a pastor or as a neighbor. But Jesus is the way. Jesus is the truth. Jesus is the life. I need a wonderful counselor to guide me into truth and righteousness. Do you? 
It's not just that. It deepens our affections for Him. When we experience the counsel of Christ, it says it this way in Proverbs 27, 9, oil and perfume make the heart glad. The sweetness of a friend comes from His earnest counsel. When was the last time you were in a dark season of life and you followed the good, wise counsel of Christ about how to do life, work, and relationships? It's happened for me more times than I can count when I've headed into a hard conversation and I don't know what to do, I don't know what to say. Instead, the Word would call me to humbly acknowledge my own sinfulness, to humbly be willing to speak the truth, and to humbly be willing to do that in love. And then watch as Jesus shows up. It's happened as I've puzzled over a strained relationship only to see Jesus' work as I follow His counsel to be patient and think the best of the other person and let God do the work instead of me do the work. It's happened as we've wondered what to buy and should we spend money on this only to see God provide. Do you want all those do in your heart towards Jesus? They deepen your affection for Him. Do you ever feel cold toward Jesus? Do you ever feel distant from Jesus? I want you to know one of the best things you can do is to start finding ways for Jesus to speak light into your darkness. Then find a spot in your life you don't know what to do and start scouring the Word for what would Jesus call you to do. And guess what? As you see Christ begin to give you the clear, unadulterated direction of what it means to live and please Him, your heart affections for Christ will be inflamed and enlarged as you see His answers are the true answer. Some of you got that and some of you didn't. I know that. So let me put it to you a different way. One of the things I loved the most about my dad was if I ever had a car problem, I could call him. That's gone. A few weeks ago, I had a question about something. And so I had to do the thing that a John's man is the most humiliated by. I took my car to the dealer. They're scoundrels from the pit of hell. That's not true, but that's the way I was raised. It's not true, but it was hard for me. And I stepped outside while they're trying to charge me a lot of money for a job I knew I couldn't do. And all I wanted to do was call my dad. It was dark, and I needed some light. And so I'm calling down through some numbers, and I got a hold of this guy, and he's this old mechanic. And it was, I told my wife, it was surreal. It was like I was talking to my dad. Just the things he was saying, he's like, nah, if it was mine, I would do this. Nah, I would never let him do that to mine. He's a mechanic. He's in business to make money. He's telling me, don't bring it here and spend money. You should just do this. And I hung up. Now, I know that was a mechanic here in town. I want you to know that was a Jesus moment. Because all I was doing was praying, God, I need some answers. And the one guy on this planet I would trust the most, I can't call. And God gave me somebody. And so I'm just pleading with you. Whether it's darkness from sin in your life, strained relationship, broken marriage, broken employment, career loss, parental confusion do you run to jesus do you cry out do you pray to him do you ask him to give you answers open his word call another believer ask some people to speak speak jesus into my life into my situation and i want you to know that when that happens your love your affection for the father deepens and magnifies exponentially are you not weary of a cold heart toward Christ. Call out to Him and seek His counsel. His divine, miraculous, soul-stirring, life-giving counsel. It will deepen your affections. And then thirdly, it will fill you with hope. One of the hardest things about a time of darkness is that while we may tell our hearts it's only a season, somebody may even say that to us, this too will pass, It never feels like it. It always feels like our darkness will be forever. Isaiah is trying to give the nation of Israel hope based on what God did in the past. So Isaiah is telling them, 
I'm going to promise you something that's coming. Now, Isaiah didn't know when it was coming, but we've got a, got a, got a while, a thousand years before Jesus is going to show up. And so he says, I'm going to give you hope. And it's like, I'm trying to give you hope this morning by saying this is what it could be. If you don't live life continuously this way, maybe you've done it in the past. You're like, man, I need to get back to that. That's true. Uh, I've never experienced that before. And so I'm trying to give you hope of the joy that you can find, the light you can find in your darkness for, in Jesus. And so how do I do that? Isaiah's like, how do I do this when I'm looking forward? How do I convince people to walk by faith? I, kn- I know, that's what Isaiah says, I know, inspiration of the Holy Spirit, we know this, I know I will direct them to a time in the past when God did it. My mother-in-law has a sign, hangs in her house, says, don't just count your blessings, share them. I love I'm like, oh, pretty good. Taking a shot at the hymn, not happy with it, no, I'm just kidding, but... Um, I like that. And so, because you know what it does when we are sharing blessings? You know, I'm, you know why I'm telling you these from my life? Because I know some of you, you maybe haven't personally experienced it. You're not intuitively aware of it. And I'm just trying to give you examples to give you some past to hang on to. But the most powerful past to hang on to is biblical past is biblical hope, is biblical confidence in what God has done. And so that's why Isaiah does. So Isaiah says, I'm going to give you hope about this uh, light coming into darkness by pointing back to another time when light came in terrible darkness. They didn't live through it. They're long ago. But they could read it and they could walk by faith and understand about it. And so when we talk about the wonderful counselor, a key emphasis is to fill us with hope. And so what happened when Jesus came? He starts his ministry, and Matthew records it this way. Leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light, and for those dwelling in the region in shadow of death on them a light has dawned. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Do you want to know the ultimate phrase that describes the wonderful counsel of Jesus? It's that, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And Jesus began to once again walk through a land that was filled with darkness, except now he was the true light. It wasn't Gideon. It wasn't this cowardly man. It wasn't this terrified man, but it was Jesus walking in day. And I want you to know the darkness of our lives cries out for miraculous light-giving wisdom. Every day, in every moment of every day. And it is my prayer for you this, this Christmas season. Now, I want to phrase this carefully. Not that God would take you into a place of darkness, because I'm actually convinced that most of us live with some kind of darkness surrounding our life. but by humility and grace and the power of the Holy Spirit, you would experience the light of his wonderful counsel. And it is my prayer that God would humble each one of us enough to go looking for it, to seek it out, and to embrace it, that you might walk in righteousness, that your affections for him might be made deeper, but that you might also experience the hope that Jesus does what he promises he'll do. And that was to bring light to this world. Father, we thank you for the coming of Jesus. And Lord, this Advent season, we ask that you would help us to live in, to dwell in, and then to rejoice in the light-giving hope of the wonderful counsel of Christ. Lord, teach us to be a people who seek out truth from Christ. We pray this in his name. Amen.